Evening. Thank you for coming back tonight. We continue our study in the attributes of God. Tonight, looking at God's love. Theme is that Paul prays for the Ephesians that they would be strengthened in their inner being by knowing the love that God has for them. Certainly, it is a wonderful truth that God loves us, and I want us to see how special a truth that really is. So, Paul's prayer, as it's recorded in the book of the Ephesians, is that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, so that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Uh, That is an oxymoron. The idea of that you might know what is beyond our ability to know. The idea is that we would increase in our understanding of the love of God. D.A. Carson has written a tremendous little book entitled The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. Uh, I've read uh, numerous books on God's love and have found this to be by far the most profitable. And uh, the reason why it's of such value is that he takes time in speaking about the various ways in which the Bible speaks of God's love. Love has a very broad uh, application in the Scriptures, even as it does in life. We use the word love in in different ways. Certainly, the way that we love our spouse is different from the way that we love our car, which is still different from the way that we love asparagus. You see, as we use the word love, it speaks of an affinity, speaks of a relationship, but those relationships are different, and God's love is different in that relationship. So again, the way that we love our spouse is different from the way that we love our neighbor. Uh, And so, D.A. Carson denotes five different ways in which God can say that uh, he loves in a relationship in a uh, rational way. First, there is the peculiar love of the father for the son and the son for the father. Peculiar not in the sense of strange or weird, but peculiar in the way of unique. Unique. God's love for his son is a unique kind of love. That is different than any other love that God has. It's a supreme love. John 3.35 The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. John 14.30 I will not speak much more with you, for the rule of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go from here. So there's a peculiar love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father. There is God's providential love for all that he has made. And so it is proper to speak about how God loves his creation. 
Matthew 5.44 But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his rain, his son to rise on the evil and good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So there, loving one's enemies is reflective of how God loves his enemies. But that love is different than the love, for example, his people. There is the love of God's salvific stance toward his fallen world. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. D.A. Carson is quite the scholar. He is a professor of research at um, Trinity Theological Seminary. Professor of research means that basically he just writes books and uh, is employed by the seminary to do that very thing and to represent them. And they have the opportunity of saying that uh, D.A. Carson is associated with Trinity. So to make a long story short, he very rarely actually enters a classroom at Trinity Seminary. I was privileged uh, in my doctor program uh, to have a course with uh, D.A. Carson. Uh, he came to Biblical and taught, and uh, it was an unusual class because 17 students from Trinity flew in in order to be able to get D.A. Carson. So, uh, they actually, the uh, students from Trinity outnumbered the students from Biblical in that particular class. But all to say that uh, D.A. Carson, his specialty is actually New Testament. And he's written a wonderful commentary on the book of John. And I found this to be a very helpful insight in understanding John 3.16. He states, and I quote, In John's vocabulary, world is primarily the moral order and willful, culpable rebellion against God. So when we talk about the world in general, usually in the New Testament, that's talking about something that's evil, being worldly, as opposed to being godly. In John 3.16, God's love is to be admired, not because it is extended to such a big thing as the world, but so bad a thing. Not to so many people as to such wicked people. And you see, that fits the context. For it says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world. There would be the aspect of bringing justice, bringing condemnation, bringing judgment to the world. But instead of judging this world, he brought salvation to this world. And that thought is certainly repeated many times in the Scripture, such as in the book of Romans. But God commended his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. For us. Then there is God's particular, effective, selecting love towards his elect. So God loves his own, the elect, in ways in which he doesn't love others. God sets his affection on his chosen ones in a way which he does not set his affection 
upon others. Quote, unquote, again from D.A. Carson. Romans 19, thir- uh, 9, 13. Just as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now, it's important to realize in Romans 9, 13, that hatred is not to be understood in the absolute sense. Next week, I'm going to talk about God's wrath. But here, when we think about hatred, we're not to understand it in the way in which we might think about the way that someone might hate the Nazis during World War II if they, they were a Jew. It's not used in that way. It's used in the same way as in the Gospels when it says, unless you hate your father and mother, you are not worthy of me. It's a comparative word. And the idea here is that God's love for his own so outweighs his love for others that it's, it's as far apart as love is from hatred. Not in the absolute sense, but it's trying to say that there's a tremendous difference between the way in which he loves Jacob and the way that he loves Esau. Ephesians 1.1 Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> Blessed be the God and Father excuse <coughs> me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to be to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. So there's this love that motivated God in Predestin, uh, predestinating us to the adoption as sons. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Again, the love that a husband is to have to his wife is to be a unique kind of love. It is to be different from the way in which we love uh, other people. So it is true of God's Love And last week I looked at the covenant that God makes with his people. I talked about jealousy. That's why this week we are following up on, on love. There's actually in my mind a, uh, mad, uh, a theory to this madness of how we're looking at these attributes. They, they flow from one into the other. You see, when we talk about jealousy, we talked about it being a right and a, and a holy attribute because of the covenantal relationship. The unique relationship where God is going to be faithful to his people, his people, his people in turn are to be faithful to him. God loves his people and we in turn are to love him above and beyond anything else. He. Finally, God's love is sometimes said to be directed towards his own people in a provisional or conditional way. Condition that is on obedience. Jude one twenty one. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. John fifteen ten. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. 
And you see there's that conditional statement. So one might wonder, well, what if we don't keep his commandments? Will he still love me? Will he still care for me? So, again, quoting from D.A. Carson, clearly, this is not God's providential love. It is pretty difficult to escape that. Nor is this God's yearning love, reflecting his salvific stance toward our fallen race. Nor is it his eternal electing love. If words mean anything, one does not, as we shall see, walk away from that love either. So now let's look at these applications, and I think this will become more clear. Application. We must guard against the misconceptions regarding the love of God when any one facet of God's love is absolutized. Meaning, when we look at God's love and see it only as one of those five things, and we understand God's love in one singular way. We have to distinguish when we talk about God's love, what we mean by it in context. So, misconception number one. This is the wrong understanding of love. Because God gave his son for me, God must love me more than his son. Now, you might think that is strange. I actually heard in a seminar at Pinebrook some but he say this, this very thing. It's a very popular concept today. In this day and age in which mankind is becoming supreme, in which everything evolves around us, the argument goes, and the illustration is made, that the value that we place on something demonstrates um, how much we love or or care for something. Okay. So in other words, the amount that you're willing to pay for something demonstrates how important that is to you. If you're willing to pay $5, it's, it's uh, less important to you than if you're willing to pay $10 for it. If you're willing to pay a million dollars for it, it must be especially important to you. And in order to get a good deal, you're not going to pay more than what it's worth. You're not going to give more than what you are getting in return. So with that basic presupposition, the idea is that if God would give his son for you, that means you are at least, at least as important to God as his son is. And just maybe more important. God is getting a deal in getting you. Now, I think you can see the fallacy of that reasoning. I certainly hope that you can. But it shows the the day and age in which we live and the pernicious way. And if I may be so bold as to say the blasphemous way. In which people talk about love. Because I really do think that's blasphemous. To think that God would love us in the same way that he loves his son. Or that we would be as important to God as his son is to God. Is really a blasphemous understanding. Number two. Misconception number two. 
God's love is an unconditional love. Therefore, I experience God's love in the same manner no matter what I do. When we look at number two, let's go to number three, and then I'll go back to points A and B under two. Misconception number three, God's love is conditional. Therefore, my salvation is conditioned or based on my obedience to God's law. So, what we are saying here, we are saying out of both sides of our mouth. And that is, on the one hand, God's love is conditional. And on the other hand, God's love is unconditional. Probably, you have heard most often that God's love is unconditional. That God loves us with an unconditional love. That is not true in the absolute sense. So, number two, A. As Christians, there is one sense in which we can say that God will always love us. However, that love is not always manifest in the same way. In the fact that, for example, in that love, he will discipline us. Hebrews 12, 6, for those who, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. So when he disciplines us, that is his love toward us, even as a good parent who loves his, their children will discipline them. However, when he disciplines us, we may not feel loved. We may not feel cared for. We may not feel special to God. B, to experience the warmth, comfort, or tenderness of God's love, we must be in fellowship with Him. It is helpful to think about our relationship with God as a father-son Relationship, John 1.12, But as many received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, who are born not of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So, God loves us. But, you see, God doesn't always love what we do. There are times in which God loves what we do. He delights in our activity. He delights in our prayers. He delights in our trust. He delights in our obedience. He does not delight in our, our wickedness. So that his love for us, though not fickle, is manifested in different ways depending on whether or not we are in fellowship with him. Whether or not we are gaining approval. Just as your relationship to your children changes... Your love doesn't change, but your relationship to your children changes depending on their obedience or their disobedience. And sometimes they are engaged in, in things that you find to be totally inappropriate. And you have to show your disfavor. And there is a sense of falling out. That doesn't mean you disown them. But... The relationship certainly isn't one of tenderness and of comfort. So, misconception number three. And that is that God's love is conditional. Always conditional. Therefore, my salvation is conditioned or based upon my obedience to God's law. You see, if up here, 
if we keep his commandments that he will love us, then we have to ask our, ourselves, well, what if we don't keep his commandments? Will he love us? So the idea here is that you cannot remove yourself from God's love. He will love us in a salvific way. We are going to be in his presence. We are going to experience eternal life. Not because of what we do, but because of what he has done. That is unconditioned love. He loves us. But the fellowship that we enjoy is what is conditional. Misconception number four. God's love for me is seen in his provision for me in my daily circumstances. Thus, if the rain falls upon me, then God loves me. If the rain does not fall upon me, then God must not love me. If things are going well, then God loves me. Or, if things are not going well, then he doesn't love me. Or a close second that is very, very important to realize. And that is that some people would say, well, yeah, salvifically he loves me. But what about this conditional love? So that if I am in fellowship with God, everything's going to go fine. And if I am out of fellowship with God, then my world is going to crumble. Then all these bad things are going to happen to me. So we can make a, a barometer, if you will. We can take our spiritual temperature. We can have a thermometer and just look at our, our lives. We can look at our bank account and say, wow, I've got money in the bank. God must love me. Oh, I can't pay my bills this week. Therefore, I must be out of fellowship with God. He must be trying to get my attention or whatever. That's a very common thought. And one that we must rid ourselves of. A. God loved his son who was born in a manger to a poor family. God's love for his son didn't mean that he caused him to be the richest man on the face of the earth. In fact, he did not have a place to lay his head. God's love is not to be equated with our material status or well-being. Let me say that again. God's love is not to be equated with our material status or well-being. Things may be going wonderfully for you. And you could be out of fellowship with God. Or things may be going terribly for you, and you are right where God wants you to be. This is also seen in the way in which people talk about God's blessing on his work. Think about Isaiah. And uh, God says, I'm going to send you to a stiff-necked people. And Isaiah's ministry, Jeremiah's ministry, basically was ineffectual. If we're going to understand it by numbers of people that repented, Numbers of people that uh, got right with God, then it was ineffectual. But it accomplished what God would have them to do. 
we need to be careful that we don't measure God's blessedness by some kind of numerical formula. In other words, if a church is growing, therefore, they must be doing something right because they're experiencing the blessing of God. And if a, if a church is declining, therefore, they must be doing something wrong. They must be not spiritual or out of fellowship with God or they wouldn't be declining. You see, that is a very pernicious way of looking at spirituality. Now, we have to look at what is that church doing? Whether they're growing or not growing, are they acting in a proper fashion? Are they, in fact, preaching and teaching the Word of God? Are they doctrinally sound? Are they demonstrating love for each other? There are numerous ways that we can evaluate the work that a entity is doing, but it shouldn't be based on prosperity. Prosperity. And you see, that is one practical misapplication of the health and wealth gospel that is so popular today. That uh, if everything's going fight, fine, you are in fellowship with God. If everything is not going right, you must be out of fellowship with God. I had someone say to me, not from our church, but uh, from our community who knew that uh, I'm a pastor. And they looked at me and they said, they said, Pastor, uh, there must be something in your life that uh, you're in that wheelchair. And uh, you need to repent of that. Okay. Okay. Uh, that's the way that some people are taught. That's the way that some people experience. But you see how fickle... That makes life. You can see how we are easily into that daisy relationship with God. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. Depending on how things are going today. Depending on what we are experiencing. Two. Our understanding of the extent of the atonement is crucial in our understanding of the love of God, which is manifest toward the believer. God sent his son into this world to save a specific group of people. John 17, 1. These things Jesus spoke, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come, glorify thy son, that thy son may glorify thee, even as thou hast given him authority over all mankind, to, that to all whom thou hast given, he may give eternal life. John 6.37, all that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. We must understand that God loves his people in a way that he doesn't love others. And the greatest manifestation of his love for us is that he gave his son for us. But we need to understand it's us. Because if we make it everybody on the face of the earth, it really removes all the tenderness, all the comfort, all the encouragement. We are rooted and grounded in love. Our confidence is God's love for us. 
That's our confidence for eternal life. And you see, if God doesn't love you and me in a way that is different from the person who is going to hell, then we have no understanding, really, of God's love for us. It's different. Jacob have I loved. Esau have I hated. Three. Our security as believers does not rest in a decision that we have made regarding God, but in the choice that God made of us in His infinite love. I am assured of my relationship with God, not because of a decision I made, but because of a choice that He made. He set His love on me, therefore I love Him. It's not that I loved Him, therefore He set His love on me. He is not responding to my love. I am responding to his love. We love him because he first loved us. That is a crucial thought in the scriptures. We are responders. We are not initiators. He initiated. He sent his son into the world. He died for us while we were yet sinners. It is His initiation. He calls us. He works in our life. It's about Him. See, in giving His Son for us, He could not have given us anything greater. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not with Him freely give us all things? It is in the giving of His Son for us that God's love is to be seen. It is not the circumstances of our lives that reveal God's love for us. Note the difficulties that people who are loved by God face. Romans 8.35 Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? Just as it is written, For thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Note that people are in these difficulties are said to be loved. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. So, we can be in tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and yes, even give our life, and God is still loving us. And we are still experiencing His love for us. Such knowledge should bring us confidence in our relationship to God. Romans 8.38 For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing is able to break that love that God has for us. It is eternal. It will never end. He set His love upon us in eternity past, and He's going to love us in eternity future, and absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. No one, no thing. Satan 
a power, nothing can separate us from God's love for us. He will never stop loving his own. So, application. God loved his son who was born in a manger. God loved his son who was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This should help us to understand that when we encounter difficulty, God still loves us. This should bring perspective to our love for family members. May we understand May we grow in our knowledge of God's love for us. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you. We praise you. We rejoice in the love that you have for us. Oh Lord, there are different ways in which you love the world. There are different ways in which you love others. But Lord, you love us in a unique and particular way, a covenantal love in which you've committed yourself to us as Lord and Savior. You have redeemed us. You have bought us. We are your own. And we're thankful that nothing can ever separate us from that love of God. Lord, also help us to understand that, that we need to keep ourselves in, in your love in the sense that, that uh, in order to experience your comfort, your tenderness, your help, that we, in fact, do need to walk with you. We do need to be in fellowship. But that doesn't mean that, that we earn uh, merit in the sense of uh, circumstances being better or worse or in monies that are given to us or, or even health. Uh, or these are not the issues that, that demonstrate your love for us. Help us to be able to make these distinguish, distinguishing factors in our own lives. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You are dismissed.